I was thinking this morning, I always seem to get you on in the spring. The last time I was on, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but I remember you had just listened to Kendrick Lamar's Damn for the first yeah. time. Like it had just come yeah. out and you said, and I had a road trip ahead of me and you said, you're gonna have a great road trip because of that album, and it was true. And I was listening <laughs> to that album today actually, and I'm like, so it's all in my head, but uh, yeah, I think it is spring. It's kind of weird because spring is not usually a time associated with good movies. Like I was wondering yeah. today, I'm like, does he really want to come on one year, like in the winter when like the good <laughs> stuff is out? Or does he want to like, come and talk about like the, 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 the cheeseburgers in the summertime? Like, should I Anytime. really like, Gotcha. It's good to know. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to episode 258 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. It's difficult to decide where to start with today's episode and today's guest. I've gone on and on already about how time seems to be moving strangely these days, and that continues today. I mean... As I wrote this introduction, I had the first baseball game of the season on TV, knowing I was thinking about a film that remains in Oscar contention, and those two timelines, baseball season and Oscar season, don't usually intersect in this way. Meanwhile, the intersection of this podcast and today's guest, as I mentioned, always happens in the spring, but has been curiously lacking for a while, and there's nobody to blame for that but me. As we talked about in this introduction, last time I guess dropped by, we talked about a new album that was dropping that day, and it's since gone on to be one of my favorite albums of recent years. What can I say? Time stands still and flies all at once these days. So I'm happy to have my guest back. I'm going to try to make an effort not to let quite so much time pass by. He is the host of What Are You Watching podcast. He also uh, writes on And So It Begins. Please welcome Alex Withrow back to the show. How are you, man? I'm doing very well. And thank you so much for having me back. It's been, it was just really great to hear from you like a few weeks ago. And then I dropped the ball because I'm horrible at DMing on Twitter. And then when you said, hey, I have the father lined up, I'm like, I'm ready to go. So I'm really excited <laughs> to be here. I think this is going to be great. I've been looking for the opportunity to talk about this this film. I, I'm, I'm happy to, to provide a platform for anybody who <laughs> wants to talk about movies. That's, that goes for listeners. If there's a movie you really want to talk about, give me a message. Odds are I want to talk about it too. And uh, yeah, as Alex tipped off on episode 258, we are going to be discussing the father. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn even more about Alex. This is Know Your Enemy. Mr. Withrow first appeared on episode 110, where we talked about Nymphomaniac parts one and two. That was a fun time. If you have ch- if you have a chance to go back to that episode, please do. We learned the first film he ever saw in a theater was Jurassic Park. The last film he'd seen at the time was a combination of shame and upstream color. His worst movie of all time was Sex in the City Part 2. His unseen classics are essential. He qualified as the 80s comedy. Big Trouble in Little China, Porky's, that kind of ilk. And the film he wish he made is um, Steve McQueen's Shame. Then for a second appearance, uh, Alex came back on episode 175. We talked about Terrence Malick's Song to Song. We learned the film 
he digs, but nobody else does, is Gaspar Noé's Love. The film everybody else digs, but he doesn't, is Jackie. The last film to make him cry was Manchester by the Sea. In the movie of his life, literally, he'd be played by his buddies Nick, John, and Micah, because he directed a film based on his own life, and they played him. And the movie he was watching next was Raw, which I finally saw like a few weeks ago. And that is nuts. such a good movie. Yeah. Oh, that movie is so good. That Man, that's a great. You're like, you're taking me down memory lane here. <laughs> I, but keep, keep going. Keep going. It's, that's, it's great. That is what we great. do, buddy. Yeah. These, these, these are snapshots in amber. I love them. It is time for round three. Mr. Withrow, interpret this question any way you wish. What was the movie that made your love of film turn a corner? To the best of my knowledge, I've been obsessed with film since cognitive thought so by the time I'm, let's say, 21, I'm like, yeah, I have a, I have a good handle. I've seen, like, what else is there to see? <laughs> I mean, it's so naive. So I had heard of Igmar Bergman. I had seen a few of his films, but I had never braved Persona. I put that on, Ooh. and 80 minutes later, the entire language of cinema, not that everything was changed, but I knew now that it could be changed in that very, very unique way. I had never seen anything quite like it, still haven't. It belongs in one of my favorite genres, like the mind mess movie, the one that just the mind head trip movie where you're not quite sure what's going on. And I thought this would kind of be in theme for what we're going to talk about today. But it, it really helped clear the way for. All right. Now is the leap into foreign films like that's what we're doing now. You you're you've seen a lot of the American classics, everything like that. Now we're catching up with all the foreign directors. So huge movie for me. Persona. It, that's an interesting choice because I didn't see that until later on in my film going journey. Like that was um, when I was doing the blind spot series several years ago, that was, that was in, in amongst those uh, films that I selected of like movies that I hadn't seen yet that I felt were important that I watch and write what they made me feel about. And, and that was how I, I eventually came around to persona by like, making a point to see it and making a point to like, think about it and, and, and react. And the one thing I do remember at the time, and maybe if I, if I remember, I'll actually post the link to that blind spot post in the show notes of this episode was I said, if you look at film long enough, eventually film will look back at you. And that Ooh, was, I love that. That, I love that. That, that, that was, yeah, that was what I felt about persona. Like I'm on the one hand, I'm really happy. I didn't see it too early because if i had seen that when i was first getting into film like 18 19 years old i don't think i would have got it i mean i would have thought it was pretty i would have thought it was handsome but i don't think i would have understood the cerebral nature of that film that's a film that it it just kind of opens up your mind into what film can do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. exactly and the looking back note is perfect especially for that movie because they have a shot of the cinematographer is Ben Nyquist just on this crane and it, you see him going up and you're like, what? Isn't that the guy shooting the movie I'm watching? Like what's happening? So yeah, yeah you can really get the wheels spinning with that one. And I mean, I mean, even the beginning of that movie, like you're not entirely sure what you're getting into because the, the opening sequence of that film is just so like nightmaric and atmospheric mm-hmm. and other, other icks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I can only imagine like going into that and thinking to yourself, you know, like, you know, you everybody, everybody's kind of the same way, right? Like you get into film and you think, you know, you've steeped yourself in lore. You've seen the basics. I've exactly. seen Citizen Kane. I know how it's going. And then you see something like that and you realize, oh, no, I really haven't even come close to touching bottom. Mm-hmm. 
that was exactly the impact. Like 80 minutes later, hit play, 80 minutes later, I went, wow, there's just so much more film to discover. Like I exactly haven't touched the bottom. Absolutely. Love it. Yeah. And it's, it's been a minute since I've watched that movie. So I think you've just actually reminded me that I need to rewatch it soon. Okay. What was, uh, what was your, one of your first date movies? Okay. I also put an interesting spin on this one because when I was young, I remember reading an interview with Quentin Tarantino and he said when he gets kind of early in the dating process, he will show the woman he is courting Rio Bravo by Howard Hawks. And if she's not into it, then he has a pretty strong indication that the relationship isn't going to work out. So I, once I became, you know, of dating age and this is in my single years because I'm happily engaged now. Woohoo. Really excited. <laughs> but in my single years and the first like couple weeks or months, I would sit the lady down and we would have to watch Point Break by Catherine Bigelow. <laughs> and if that one didn't pass, like if you can't, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. If you can't hang with Point Break, then I just, I don't know if you can hang. And it, uh, it worked like a charm every time because I think it's a really difficult movie to actively dislike, but yeah, I'm going to go with point break. I love it. <laughs> okay. The, for the second answer in a row, there's a lot to unpack here. There we go. Um, so, I mean, like good choice. First of all, I cannot argue with this at all. I mean, the, the film is in several levels absurd, but on the on other levels, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of craft going on in that movie. Like as time has gone on, like I have this weird love hate relationship with late eighties and early nineties movies, because that was the era I grew up in. But I find that as I'm growing into the age where people in my demographic are leaning harder and harder on nostalgia, I look back on some things and I'm like, you know what guys, that was really crap. Like we don't, Mm -hmm. we don't want to say this, but it was really shit. And we were just young and impressionable. But then there's there's levels of crap, right? So on the surface, the story of that movie is absurd. Oh, of course. But but all the same, the actual like technique and filmmaking and pacing and all of that is just a masterclass in cop movies and action movies. And and it just it fits nicely into my love of all things Catherine Bigelow. So I approve. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean. Like, did you have experiences where where your date did not like Point Break and that was like the red flag? No, I had many, many experiences, almost uh, 100% experience of them not wanting to watch it before it was started and being like, uh, yeah, I don't really think it's going to work. But there is kind of a method of the madness. Like, I'm a really, I'm just, I try to be an easygoing and I'm a really goofy guy. And that movie presents like, you know, every word to it. If you're watching it with someone, you can just kind of cut up, have a little fun with it. And my yeah. whole thing is, if if this is going to be, you know, a thing, we are going to be watching a lot of movies. Sorry, right. like, it's just, it's just kind of, it's a byproduct of me. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, you know, I just want to make sure that you don't need to be able to hang with Persona. I get it. Like, that you don't need to. <laughs> but like, if we can hang with Point Break, I think, I think we'll go, I, I think we'll be all right, at least for a little bit. <laughs> You're a sick man, but I love <laughs> thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right. Speaking of, what is your sick day movie? Love this one as well. Um, knock on wood, don't really get sick often, especially. I mean, you know, that's a crazy word to think about given everything. I've gone, I've gone a year without. I, like, I, Same I here. Feel like saying, yeah. It's, you know, because because we haven't been like going to the events that we have to go to and that kind of thing. I, I can't actually remember like the last time I had a cold. It's been yeah. at least a year. Exactly. So, exactly. Hope, um, and, and yeah, hopefully that sticks. 
Yeah. Amen. So when I saw sick, I immediately thought of hungover and I don't, I really don't drink anymore. So I've not been hungover in years. Thank God. But there was a spell. If I was hungover, cliffhanger was going on. Rennie Harlan <laughs> written, written and oh, starring boy. the great Sylvester Stallone. And I wanted to keep things kind of light in these, in at least two of these questions because we're going to get the heavy stuff later. But yeah, cliffhanger, like if I'm sick, that thing delivers. You have Jonathan Lithgow doing whatever he's doing. And I love it. I love that movie as a kid. One of the first R-rated movies I ever saw. Uh, what a thrill. I'm not sure I've ever actually seen that all oh. the way through. And yet at the same time, I feel like I've seen that. <laughs> you know, the, that's the one thing I love about those, those eight, like all of those eighties action movies. And this is kind of what I was getting at with nostalgia is they're kind of interchangeable, you know, uh-huh. like it's, it's just like, it's basically, you know, commando on a mountain or yeah. it's commando in the jungle or, you know, it's you, or you, that was, that was kind of the, the selling point for the while, right. With like, oh, yeah. die hard. They used to say it like, it like under an uh, under siege was die hard on a boat. Exactly. If you're hung over, it's, it's, you don't have to concentrate. It's not, it, it's not terribly loud. So your, your head is going to be okay. Um, one thing, if you want to check that movie out, I need to be fact checked on this, but when that movie was made, it had the most like expensive stunt in film history because they, you, you got to see it, but they're transporting a lot of money from one plane to another while they're in the air. And they actually did that and had a dude like zip line from a plane to a plane. It's just stuff that would never be done now because you would use CG, but it's pretty wild. Uh, listen, man, you, you say it's stuff that'll never be done. And yet in the back of my head, I'm hearing Christopher Nolan say, we need to do this practically. Otherwise, well, it's, yeah. 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 So somebody did it. Okay. Cliffhanger. All right. Uh, I mean, it certainly wouldn't make you feel worse. That's for damn sure. Mr. Withrow, what was the last film to leave you speechless? All right. So now we're going to get serious real talk one night in Miami. And oh. that is, I mean, no question. I was, when that movie ended, I was so stunned. I could not move. I mean, it, it, it just, it really trapped me. And I am, I'm so interested in that period of time and studying it. And I'm indebted to the real man, the real men who were portrayed in it. Um, and you know, I just, I was so into the movie. I did not see that ending coming. I didn't know what it was leading to. It just, I was so into it. It kind of lost me. And then the performance, I don't want to give too much away in case, you know, people haven't seen it, but the, the performance is magnificent and your heart is so full and there's that single tear. And then, but the last shot of the film and the person the camera rests on, he closes his eyes or he nods his head, closes his eyes. The, 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 the power of that silence and that understanding is, I mean, I'm getting chills just talking about it. I was, I was so emotionally devastated, especially when you take into context what happened to Sam Cooke and Malcolm X a few, like not long after the events of that movie take place. So yeah, I really, really, really enjoyed that movie much more than I thought it would. And I thought the ending was perfect. That's actually quite a a good companion film for what the movie that we're going to talk about in a minute, Mm -hmm. because they're both based on plays Mm -hmm. and they both primarily take place in one location. Like you can see the staging, like you can imagine if you paid a ticket and went to a theater and watched a production, like you, you can, you can, it doesn't take a, a very, um, big leap mentally to understand how it would play out on a stage. Um, and yet both of them show at the same time, the power of cinema in how it can elevate, um, that kind of thing and take something that is very simple and very much about the performance and give it some added 
punch. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's crazy because I love that movie so much. It was one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, it's, it's just I, I don't know that it necessarily left me speechless. So I love that it it hit you yeah. um, as hard as it did. I have been going on and on about how a lot of the credit for that deserves to go to Regina and her incredible direction mm-hmm. with those four men. Four, there are a certain type of man, all four of those actors. Um, but still, I believe that you have to um, come at it with a certain approach to get them to buy into what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know, like, fortunately, we're in a world where women still have to push harder than a guy would to, to get the same job done, right? So I'm, I'm re- I'd really love to be a fly on the wall to that set and listen to how she got those guys to where she got those guys. It's a great point. I would have, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I know that's a, it's a streaming movie. So I, I'm just, I'm the guy who's still such a sucker for director's commentaries, all those special features. And I feel like we're losing those, but I would love to hear her do a commentary for that. Well, you might get your wish actually, because I, a uh, criterion is, is buddied up with Amazon and they're going to be putting out an edition of that. And they're also going to be putting out an edition of time. That uh, is before. great. That's yeah, great. So you're, you might very well get your wish. Perfect. So, all right, good, uh, good choices all you're doing great here. So, all right, man, no pressure here, but you got to close it out strong. Alex Withrow, what film quote would you use for your epitaph? Love is a stream. It's continuous. It doesn't stop. That is said by Jenna Rollins in the movie Love Streams, directed by her husband, John Cassavetes, 1984. Have you seen that movie? I have not. I'm still learning the uh, the Cassavetes. Mm-hmm. I watched um, Opening Night. Is that mm-hmm. was that was? Yeah, I watched yeah. that a, a week or two ago. So I'm, I'm still kind of I'm still kind of making my way through his his work. Um, Love Streams is a really good film. J- John Cassavetes is a challenging director. Uh, he's my favorite filmmaker, but I, I get that his longtime producer and collaborator, Al Rubin, said you you have to be indoctrinated into his style. Like you can't really watch it just idly. But this one is really a love letter to he worked with a lot of the same people. And uh, John Cassavetes was, was a really sick guy. He from a lifetime of smoking and drinking and before he started this movie, Love Streams, his doctor told him he had five months to live. Five oh, months. It takes a lot longer to make a movie from start to end cut to like having a final print. It takes a lot longer than five months. He yeah, gave up kidding. the booze and, you know, even himself out, got a little healthier, ended up living for a few more years. But he did not know he was going to live while he was making and starring in this movie. So I really, really love it. It's never on the Criterion channel. It's available to buy by them uh, a gorgeous blu-ray but they never have it streaming which is really a bummer i'm still as i said i'm still making my way through his works um i i've only seen a very small handful he's like you say like he can he can be kind of challenging uh sometimes i i I do by the way love that uh point break is your date (laughs) is your is is your threshold test is your litmus test and not a cat cassavetti's movie because i think that would be a bad idea exactly Um, exactly that's like I would have to be a sadist or something to do that. Yeah. If you don't like a woman under the influence, this is over. Like no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I do love the quote. I think it's poetic. You know, when I think of his movies, I actually think of movies that are very emotionally cold. So I mm-hmm. love that you could take some of the text and lift it from this movie that's cold and give it, you know, a little bit more warmth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I have never met a filmmaker whose movies came from more of a place of love. You just 
really, really, really have to dig to find it. And he has little scenes, little pockets, but sometimes the emotional payoffs in his movies are very uh, profound to me anyway. Uh, I like it. So uh, yeah. very well done. We'll uh, we'll learn more about you next time we have you on. I promise it won't take three or four years this time. Awesome. Uh, so uh, we'll uh, we'll get you another round of questions. But for now, we have a movie to talk about. And what a movie. I did not expect to have this much to talk about. Come on back after this. We're going to get into the new slang for episode 258. And we're going to talk about The Father right after this. The Father is directed and written by Florian Zeller. It's based on the play Le Père, also written by Zeller. It stars Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Colman, Mark Gaddis, Olivia Williams, Imogen Poots, and Rufus Sewell. The Father is about a man named Anthony. He's played by Anthony Hopkins, so that checks. He's living in London and dealing with uh, early onset dementia. His daughter, Anne, that's played by Olivia Colman, is trying to sort out his caretaking. And it can be anything from bringing somebody in to look after him to potentially putting him into a long-term facility and going through all of the paces that everybody eventually has to go through when dealing with that uh, reality for their parents. The difficulty, of course, is that because Antony is dealing with the beginnings of dementia, he easily gets confused as to who he's talking to, what he's talking about, and when. And the film has a nature of shifting back and forth and very much putting us into Anthony's shoes as he deals with this difficult time in his life. The father is a bit of a tough sell. During these stressful times, it's not exactly escapist cinema. In an age where we all long to get outside and shake off the cabin fever of our lockdown, it presents itself almost entirely in one flat. And then just to make matters worse, it's a story about something that waits for us all at the end of our journey. And yet... I wager that both Mr. Withrow and I are going to recommend it. So pop quiz hotshot, why? Why should someone eat their vegetables or take their vitamins with this dour tale? One of the smartest movies I've ever seen about old age, uh, period. And that, that's kind of, that would be my main selling point, that if you see this, it is not going to be an easy sit. It's not an easy sell. And that is because the story is a little complex but the, and the acting is so believable and so authentic and strong. But you are going to walk away with a profound reality of what it means to be in this situation, whether you are the, the caregiver or the one being you know, cared for. And it, it, it's going to be a really, really interesting movie to unpack because I have found it a little hard to recommend for certain people, certain people who have had uh, relatives go through this. It, I thankfully haven't had to experience this, but it, I know. I, it's my understanding that this can be one of the absolute worst things to watch happen to your loved one. And for a lot of people, that could be a tough sit. But if you are wired like me, I like to kind of lean into the pain and let's kind of assess what's going on here. If I watch this movie and it stirs feelings within me, which it did, I like to kind of process that and think on it. And my, my last kind of selling point for this movie is I had – no idea what this was going to be about. I never heard of this film until the Golden Globe nominations. No idea what it was. I was kind of joking about it on my podcast that maybe it'll be the best movie ever made because I just never heard of it. 
And it turns out, like, I, I saw it and was very moved, very surprised by how good it was. And I, I love that it got its six Oscar nomination. Kind of similar to you, I was joking about it during the Oscar podcast on the last episode and just basically constantly turning it over to my guest because she had seen it and I had not. Um, and, 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 you know, we kind of said it's the typical English nomination. Like, I got in my head images of Remains of the Day or Philomena. Mm-hmm. That, that niche of mm-hmm. Oscar-nominated film. Um, why I would recommend it, like to answer my own question, why I think people should eat their vegetables and take their vitamins is right now I would say it's tough for us all to find something fictional that really makes us feel. The, the world is getting so much, right? Like it, it's just becoming so overwhelming, so depressing, so angering it's it's hard for something else to permeate through whether it's whatever you're doing whatever it's whether it's sports or like the 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 25th zoom call of the day or whatever it's hard to find something that breaks through your exterior especially because you're relying on your home entertainment to to break through the exterior you don't have the added power of a big screen in a dark room this film will do that this film not just by the story it tells, but by the way it tells it, will do what good cinema is supposed to do and really make you feel what its characters are going through. And I think as much as, you know, there are lots of other films this year that I thought were great. um, This was the one that really put me into its story the deepest. You know, that's, yeah, I love that. That's a really good selling point of what's going to keep grab and keep your attention at home because Mm -hmm. that's what we're all forced to do. And I, I watched it um, when it came out, when it was available to the public. And then I watched it right before we went on live tonight because I I wanted it fresh in my mind and your note about how, how it is made. Yeah. I, I didn't really pay attention or pick up on the sound design the first time and how, I mean, it just, it, it really is kind of a manifestation of his fear and when things are his confusion, when things aren't going right, how it's just slowly creeping up. And yeah, this is a a very, very smartly made film by, by a first time director. Like that's, it's wild. It's really, really good. But <laughs> it's kind of annoying when that happens. Yeah, isn't it, it? Yes, it is. It is actually. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, when I was watching it, I, I immediately, cause you know, I'm watching it at home and it grabbed me immediately. Cause I went, I haven't seen too many movies like this this year. We're just sitting in this room you know you go to a next room or the next scene and it this movie requires an active participation when you view it if you're getting on your phone then i mean you're going to be more confused than you were if you weren't getting on your phone because i was confused a few times but it's it's going to lose you and i think this is one that you're never even going to be tempted to get on your phone because you're going to constantly be trying to like figure it out at least that was the case for me the film really wants to make you feel the discombobulation of Anthony. And if you look away, you will definitely feel that disc- that discombobulation very, very quickly. Um, what I think, like, I want to kind of jump right to that because along with what's on the page of how this film is written, it's very much in its cinematic language and its technique. This movie, it puts us into his shoes visually by not like without any real tricks, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't change a person from frame to frame Mm -hmm. so much as a shot will lead us into, into a room and we're seeing somebody who we haven't seen before, but we're led to believe that it's somebody else. 
that very easily could have been a gimmick. I mean, like last night before I went to sleep, I was watching Rope by mm-hmm. by Alfred Hitchcock, right? Which is a great little story, but it it's it's got so much cachet because it's the yep. the the basically one shot Hitchcock movie. This could have been that. Like this could have been the, you know, the the editing movie or the the trick shot movie. But I never really feel like any of its any of its choices are actually a gimmick. Like every time we flip from moment to moment and it's Olivia Williams instead of Olivia Coleman, which by the way, props for switching out the Olivia's. That's I don't know if that was genius. a genius. I don't know if yeah, I don't know if that was a deliberate <laughs> meta trick or not, but I am there for it. Oh yeah. Um I never felt like that was a real gimmick so much as it was a really effective choice. Yes. When about 15 minutes into this, when I kind of, when I started to realize what it was doing, I went, oh, oh, I'm, I'm really, really interested in this. This is really, really smart. And I was listening to your last episode and Myra talked a lot about the editing of the movie and how the editing mm-hmm. is so precise. And when I rewatched it, uh, tonight, I really wanted to pay attention to that. And I kept rewinding those transitions because they're so simple. The camera, like it doesn't, there's no crazy fades or any visual effects. There's nothing. It just, you're resting on Hopkins face and then you just cut to a hallway. And another thing I noticed about the, when I, for the second viewing was how many times are you watching a movie and, you know, someone enters a room, like for instance, when you're watching Hopkins in the kitchen, but we're in the hallway and then Olivia, Olivia Williams enters the kitchen and you're like, is she going to walk back into frame? I, I mean, is she even there or, or is she just going to? And usually when we're watching a movie, we're, we just accept that two people are talking in the kitchen and they're both going to be there at the end of the conversation. And I loved having to actively watch this and going, what is his mind going to do to him next? And how is this director going to pull this off visually without gimmicks, without tricks? I, I mean, this was just such a. I like to call movies like this a straight story. It was just really, really solid editing, writing, acting, production design, which we'll get into. It had all that foundation of a solid movie. You know, I, I think we, we need to kind of turn to the acting because mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a clinic. This is a movie like, you know, if you put this on paper, I would have thought that it would go very melodramatic very quickly, um, especially when it comes to Hopkins, because the the reality is when you when you get a person who is sick, you know, they, it can lead to episodes. It's, it's, it's one of like the hardest parts to deal with. It's like, how do you know, most of us have no training in this kind of shit. And I don't care how many books you read, you're just not ready. Right. So uh, you would think that in a story like this, that Hopkins, especially given how big he can be would go over the top, but his performance is just so measured every single time this isn't even a long movie it's like what like 90 minutes 95 minutes exactly (laughs) he packs so much into that 95 minutes like there's moments where he's charming there's moments where he is like really big and and like challenging of of everybody else who's in the room there's moments where he's small and really you know like you just kind of want to give him a hug and it's like i would have thought by now i could see everything that anthony hopkins is going to do and it's kind of like at age 80, whatever, he's like, no, no, no. Let me show you everything I can do in one movie. That's such a good way to put it. I looked it up 83 because I just wanted to know, like, go oh Anthony Hopkins. Like, you know, yeah. but yes, you're right. I can think we can all think of great Anthony Hopkins performances in which he is big, like Nixon or small or terrifying, like Lecter. 
But this was everything right there in a really, really tight 97 minutes. And he's not even present on screen for every single one of those minutes. So it it, it really was a clinic in his acting. I find I found myself looking at him. I'm such a, an admirer of his and his career and just being dumbfounded. Like this man, 83 years old, still has it. And he's still telling us something new. It's not easy to just let your camera sit there and have it play out on someone's face. And, you know, he has... He has those, that lifetime of of wrinkles and just in turmoil and everything packed in it. But then all he has to do is flash a little smile and you're like, wow, that guy, oh, the biggest charmer in the world. Like when he was kind of doing those little dances, having his whiskey, I was like, man, look at this guy. I think what really cemented his performance for me in this film is there's a, a scene in the late going where they finally have brought in uh, a caretaker to um, care for him, this woman played by Imogen Poots. Imogen Poots, who, by the way, does just not get enough work for how good totally she is. Totally agree. Yeah. But they, they they bring in this woman named Laura to help him. And she's trying, like, you know, like she's she's getting on with him pretty well. And she's she's being, you know, much, she's being quite accommodating compared to, uh, certainly compared to his son-in-law. And there's a moment where Anthony just kind of turns on her he calls her on her patronizing ways, right? Like of, of taking the pill and going for the walk. And he, it's not big, but at the same time, it's kind of scary because you're like, is he about to wig out on mm-hmm. her? He's right. Like that's the really scary. It's, it's like, here's a guy who has spent most of this movie drifting in and out of consciousness. And all of a sudden he's just sharp as attack. It's so coiled and so perfect that, you know, if he misses by a, by an inch, he misses by a mile, but Hopkins just never misses. Yep. So like moments like that in this movie were like where I was like, I am, I am here for this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I caught that within him so many times where God, he just had to be so careful of like, if you push this one way, another scene that really stuck out to me was the first time we meet Olivia Williams and she comes home and then he sits down and that it's all playing over his face. Like, okay. This is definitely not my daughter. This is not what she looked like. But then he has to kind of pretend like, okay, I'm talking to her. Like, is this her? And that that conflict of playing out, like, it, it's just all over him. And that is a very, very difficult rope to walk across about, you know, because he never once overacts one way or the other. I mean, I think the other thing that he does really well in this movie is um, the other unfortunate reality as as people age, um, whether they're sick physically or they're sick uh, mentally, is they find ways to cheat it. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. they'll, they won't let on about symptoms or they won't let on about like how confused they are and they find ways to bluff. And he does that several, several times in this movie. He find like you, you listen to him bluff through something, whether it's losing the watch or finding the watch or something like that, or whether it's knowing who he's actually talking to or why he, he always nails those, those little white lies to help him function just a little, a little bit longer. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Really and, well, yeah. Really well said. The bluffing. That is. That's yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. And then we have uh, Olivia Coleman in this movie. She's not asked to do anything near as showy as uh, Hopkins does, but at the same time, what she has to do is still like she still has to hit a very small mark. I definitely am guilty of not discovering her until the favorite. I have since gone back and, and watched a lot and caught up on a lot of Olivia Coleman. I love, I, I've never seen her do anything remotely mediocre. She's just amazing. No. Yeah. But yes, this is a different sort of, she has to touch on a different sort of level here. And what really stood out for me 
was her final scene in this film this time because that she has this character is forced to make a lot of emotional decisions and she has a lot riding on her and the more the movie goes along you realize how much she has sacrificed for her father and when she makes these decisions at the end it really it really carried an emotional weight for me and kind of a gut punch because she doesn't say a word and it, that's a really difficult thing for an actor to do to do considering she just you know a few years ago won an oscar for making us laugh every couple seconds that she was on screen. So I love seeing this side of her. I love seeing all sides of her. I can't wait. I, I will watch anything Olivia Coleman's in. The, what I love about her is she, she kind of plays the pivot in this movie between dealing with her father and dealing with her husband. The unfortunate thing about this kind of story where the family of one half of a relationship is getting sick is the other half of the relationship gets dragged in. And sometimes that will put a very big strain on a relationship and not everybody men always men handle it very handle it very well and sure enough you know this time around her her husband paul does not handle it very well so we have to watch her on the one hand try to navigate taking care of her father and what's best for her father and how does she balance that with what she wants um and on the other hand trying to placate and navigate life with Paul and it you know we we see two different sides of this woman within the same story and and they're very very different and she is able to shift back and forth for them with with a great amount of ease i just felt for her so much as a caregiver about i mean she can't even go get dinner get a chicken from downstairs no. for like a couple yeah. of minutes without an emergency call you have to come back i mean yeah it there's a whole movie about her somewhere. And, and I mean that as a compliment, you know, there's a whole, uh, the caregiver or the daughter out there that is, I found her uh, very compelling to watch. And I can't say I, are, were you surprised by her Oscar nomination? I'm without having seen the movie. Yes. She's not an obvious choice. So that, right. that's, that's for sure. Um, because it, this is the kind of role that goes to a lot of, working british actors like i mean it could have just as easily gone to olivia williams in this movie so without having seen it yeah now that i see it no she's asked to do a lot of emotional weightlifting um from scene to scene and it's it's beautiful to watch and 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 to see how she deals with this unfortunate like not unfortunate but just this very difficult chapter in life i don't know if she's drawing from experience or not but i i like looking at it i do believe that mm -hmm. she's drawing on it from experience i guess the one question i do have is is this movie ever too subtle like you know we are asking people to watch this at home and like you said like there is that temptation to kind of start noodling with your phone do you think that this is maybe too low of a boil for people for some people yeah i mean you you just you kind of have to accept that that we all have different attention spans i i think they're even decreased more when we're at home because there's so many things that can grab our focus. But yeah, I, I think it's going to be tough for some people to sit down and fully commit themselves to it because it is a very subtle movie. There is a lot going on here with the production design, which was very, very smartly nominated for the Oscar. I really, really appreciated that. But I found focusing on the walls and the set as much as the actors, at least on my second viewing, which is a compliment because I'm like, okay, that stuff is a little out of place. Or the, And even when we went to the doctor's office, I'm like, this is definitely the same set. They just dressed it differently. Like this is, this is really, really fascinating. So to contain your movie 
into such a small space and then be able to pull it off is I, yes, I, but, but I, I'm noting that as someone who's kind of this geek and obsessed with movies and maybe there are people who won't necessarily care about those subtleties as much and that might happen. But I don't know, in terms of the Oscar fair we have right now, I think this is a really damn worthy effort. So I, you know, even if it is more subtle than some of the other movies, we have, we kind of have a subtle Oscar year, you know, Nomadland's pretty <laughs> subtle movie. <laughs> no Nari is a subtle movie. So, I mean, if you're, you know, if you've liked those and those have grabbed your attention, I think put this one on too, but yeah, it, it is a subtle film for sure. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you're here for spectacle, this is not your year. Correct. Um, <laughs> it's, it's funny because on the one hand, like it is, it is a low boil, but at the same time, I think it's not too deep of a commitment like i i believe that if if the average person can manage through a 60 minute episode of like downton abbey mm-hmm. they can get through this at, at 95 minutes and the one thing i do appreciate about this movie i actually didn't realize that it was up for best production design but now that you mention it i'm like hell yeah um is it doesn't while it is a subtle film it's not a claustrophobic film. It, uh-huh. it, uh, it's surprisingly spacious. It's surprisingly airy. I turned to my wife midway through the movie and I was like, you know what? If we needed to be locked down in an apartment for a year, I would totally be locked down in right. that apartment. That thing, that <laughs> apartment just seems to go and go and go. Right. You know, I've spent, I've spent, yeah, I've spent a year in a one, one plus bedroom. I'd be happily locked down in that thing. And I mean, even just the way late in the film, we, we spend a lot of time walking back and forth through the hall. It's, it's great. Like there's a lot of dolly shots through that hall to kind of really make you feel like you're getting your, your steps in. But I love the way late in the movie we walk through that hall and he opens up a door and the door opens up to somewhere we haven't been yet. Mm -hmm. And it gives us that extra insight into his psyche of walking into a space and just mentally being in another space where you haven't been for years and has nothing to do with the space you're in, but that's just at that stage in life. And at that stage of your, your affliction, where your brain happens to go, it's, it's all at once. It's very, very natural. It's a very naturally progressed shot. And at the same time, very jarring and shocking. That kept, that was probably the the most profound shock of that type that I had, but I kept finding myself just having those even i mean when he would walk into a different room and then it's the actors have changed and i'm and i i think another key thing here is that this never frustrated me the style of editing the swapping the kind of joining his mindset i was never frustrated in the fact that i couldn't quote figure it out i just yeah. let the thing be the thing and i wasn't if it's a puzzle, I was never trying to solve it. I just felt like I was in very capable hands. And like you said, we're going to be out of here in 97 minutes. So, you know, wh- whatever, it, it's not the biggest ask in terms of time commitment. But I felt that the way that it concludes, it made that puzzle-like structure all worth it. I, I was very, very pleased by the end of it, by the way it had laid itself out. Well, because along with playing with the psyche and playing with the space, it also plays with time, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's, it's not, it's not kind of the same sort of thing as like Pulp Fiction where it takes the scenes and puts them out of order. It finds this weird way to fold time in on itself and have us move backwards and forwards through, I don't know. It's like, it's not even, it's like what, two days? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, like at one point I thought it was all within one day, but it's very, it's very clearly at least more than one day. 
but it so elegantly does this thing where we circle back onto something and push forward onto something and it underline again, I, I've, I've said this a few times already, I know, but it underlines that feeling. It puts us deeper and deeper into Anthony's position where he's never entirely sure of time because neither are we, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're like, wait, haven't, haven't we lived this moment already? Didn't we have this conversation? And it, it just, it finds, yeah, there are some times where it switches in and out the actor and it has that little gimmick, but there's other times where it's just, we'd seen a conversation happening and now we walk back into it from the other side and it, it does all of this just so amazingly well. Yeah. I, I mean, I honestly thought when I was watching this movie, I, I, I said, this, this must be what your brain feels like when you ha- have this affliction. Be- it, mm. it really helps put in that mindset of like, so that's why I never got frustrated with it. Cause I identified really early. Okay. We're supposed to be kind of in his perspective, in his point of view. So this doesn't make sense to him. So it's okay if it doesn't really make sense to us. But yeah, this is the type of movie where there's that great scene where he walks into the dining room and he overhears, you know, his daughter and and son-in-law talking. And then that same scene ends like 10 minutes later with them saying the exact same lines. And the way that you've gotten there, Oh, I just, I loved, I, I don't even know what to call it. It's, it's like, it's not a fracture narrative, like Pulp Fiction. It's like a, it's like a crazy eight narrative. Like everything kept connecting, but it was just doing kind of loops and on itself. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it sort of reminds me of like what, uh, what they were trying to do in like interstellar, like, or, or yeah, like a wrinkle yeah. in, like a wrinkle in time, like how you can necessarily like fold a timeline and get from one point to another without going in a straight line. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very much like that. And I mean, I guess one of the reasons why I appreciate this film and I love this film so much is it never had to do that. Like it really and truly could have just taken its money, played it gone from point one to point 10 and just laid it, let it go, like played it as a straight narrative. And it still would have been an engaging story. But by adding in these techniques, they're not even tricks. That's that's what I think that's the thing I'm. I'm trying to impress upon it with this conversation is there are a lot of films out there that pull off all kinds of neat cinematic trickery to, to do something that, you know, you can't necessarily do, but I really don't feel like this film was ever being dishonest or trying to really get showy in that kind of way. It just found a different way to tell these beats. Yeah. I I don't think it's out to try to fool you. I don't imagine this director kind of, sitting watching the final product being like, haha, this is really going to get him. It's going to confuse him. I think he's trying to take you on an emotional journey of someone who has dementia. And it's very, very rare, in my opinion, when the editing and the structure of a film matches how you're supposed, how that character is identifying. Because, you know, the majority of movies are told in order. That's how we all live. So that's fine. But when our brain is damaged and our brain is afflicted by something, what a bold choice to, yeah, kind of disjoint the movie like that because you, you just made a really good point. Whenever I'm watching a movie like this, it's kind of told out of order. One of my first, the first thought I have is, would this movie work if it was in order? Am, am I gaining something out of it being told out of order? And yeah, I, I really thought it would have been a strong film chronologically, but I really thought it did the story a service to tell it this way. It's a beautiful story. We haven't even really got into the fact that 
we have multiple people playing these multiple moments. Like we have an, like just to, to put a point on this, I mean, you know, spoilers, if, if you really consider it that, but from moment to moment, Anthony will be believing that he's talking to Anne. And there are some times where it is played by Olivia Coleman. And there's other times where it's played by Olivia Williams. Later on in the movie, we realize who Olivia Williams really and truly is. Now that's a neat trick. Like that's, that's <laughs> one thing where I will say, you know, like that was a neat technique ditto with the you know there's an actor who sometimes plays paul who later on shows up as somebody else um and then of course you know like you get the 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 biggest payoff of them all with the caregiver laura when she shows back up as who she really is again i say this in any other film this would be a gimmick but in this movie i loved what each actor did they're mimicking their doubles just mm-hmm. enough that you can see it you know like along with the fact that we've got two olivias right that, yeah, that's just that's right. just that's just added added goodness but to listen to rufus sewell and mark gaddis give the same lines you can see in their in their demeanor you can see in their timbre the the, the confusion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i thought those those two in particular did a really good job of each balancing. Like, I, I wonder, were, were they as actors? Were they talking offset? Was there a lot of rehearsal? Like, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna play it this way. This is gonna be my acting choice because I found there were similarities. But what was what was so cool is how different the subtlety in their differences because they at both were at times so patient with him, and then at times frustrated, and then both of them I was very I was angry with and you know, terrified for Anthony Hopkins for, because you could just see both of them turn a switch really easily. It was good casting. They, they weren't as similar looking or they don't share the same namesakes as the Olivia's, but that had to be intentional as well. And it still really worked. And, you know, Rufus Swell, I I just love that guy. (laughs) I don't see enough of him anymore. And I, every time I see him, I'm like, I, I just, I've always, always really liked him. I thought he really delivered. So did Olivia Williams. You know, I've, everyone did. Everyone was great in this. Well, what I love about Rufus Sewell is as we were watching this movie, Lindsay said to me, she's like, every time he shows up in a movie, I all like, I'm always ready for him to be a weasel. And it was, it's yeah. funny. Cause like, I was like, give him a minute. And sure enough, yeah. you know, like yeah. he, when he starts talking to Anthony on his own, I'm like, there it is. You know, he's, he's not necessarily a weasel, but he's not in here for good reasons. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I guess. I, I would hope that we've convinced people who may not have spent time. I mean, I hope that we, if, if you haven't watched this movie that we haven't spoiled the living shit out of it for you, but I do hope that we've convinced people who may not have seen this movie or may have just been not wanting to invest the time and money to, to go for it. I, I do believe this movie comes with a great deal of catharsis, whether you are the caretaker or whether you are the infirmed. I believe this movie has a great deal of empathy that you're not in this alone this movie leads to an emotional payoff at the end that i don't really want to reveal because it's it's just so profound and so simple and it's writing and it's it's the kind of it's the last thing anthony hopkins has to say in the movie and i i don't want to like put a guarantee on it but if you watch this movie and you pay attention for all of it it would be very hard to believe that the ending of this would not stir you in some way emotionally because you, I mean, just everything that it leads to and uh, the way Hopkins lands this delivery of this small, sad man. I, 
that should be another selling point of it. Kind of like, you know, it's not as maybe profound as Tom Hanks, Captain Phillips stuff where like everyone, you got to see these last 10 minutes. But the emotional resonance of Anthony Hawkins' last scene in this is really, it just really hits hard. And yeah, that, that made it worth the movie to me, basically. If anybody was unsure about why he was nominated before they get to that final sequence, they know it by the, by the time yeah. it's done. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Um, and it's honest, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not the kind of, perf- it's not the kind of scene. It's not the kind of performance that I feel is really melodramatic and over the top and Oscar Beatty, even though I kind of hate that, that phrase, there's scenes like that in war films, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's something that is really tragic. And at the same time, very, very real. That's the hard part is you don't necessarily want a movie to go there, but once it takes you there, it, it, you can't not feel for the characters and it, it is getting harder and harder to make people feel when they're, mm-hmm. when they're in the face of good art. Um, so, I mean, I, I really hope that if people were on the fence about this movie uh, that we haven't a spoiled the Holy shit out of it, but B that we, you know, that we've talked you into giving the father 97 minutes of your life. Cause really what else are you doing right now? We're all locked down. Cases are still go. going up. Exactly. Um, we, we, uh, we wrap up every, uh, review here on the matinee cast with a souvenir something tangible or intangible if you could take away from this movie and keep you would uh alex withrow what would you keep from the father you kind of already touched on it but i want this flat (laughs) i want the whole thing right i want to live in it for a little bit i mean it yeah it was very uh as a movie set like as a thing it was very impressive but then you know, as kind of a character within the film, I thought it was impressive. So I, I just go with the whole place. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's another movie uh, that deals with a similar topic where, where the flat is in France. And I always think to myself, I'm like, you know, Europeans have it good. Like they, those, right? those yeah. old buildings look huge. I'm in a, I'm in a building that was built in 2010 and this thing is a shoebox. I want to, <laughs> you know, if I want to grow old, I want to grow old in London because that flat is huge. Um, well, my, my souvenir is I love his stereo setup. Um, you know, he's, it, it's crazy cause he's, he's listening to CDs and I've now moved more to vinyl. If I'm going to listen to digital music, I listen to like Spotify or that kind of thing. But I love how he's got those beautiful headphones and he's got a comfy chair and he's even got a little cloth nearby. Yeah. If he has to wipe the CD, I'm like, man, this is a guy of priorities. This is a man yeah. who knows that as he gets older, the classical music is going to keep him company. And he's got a great little setup in that room. That's a great pick because that stuff was really important to him. Like you saw the anguish when that song started to skip. He's like, oh, yeah. I got to clean this. Like, yeah, great pick. I mean, and, th- and that's the thing. Like, you know, I- I'm sure I have no experience with this, but I-, I would believe that in in a position like his, triggers are even harsher, you know? So like if there if you can get set off by the easiest thing, something like that can really send you down a rabbit hole. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I would imagine that like something like that, like your favorite CD having a scratch, like would really kind of throw you for, for a loop. So I I do like that, that that's in that and that he has a thing to fix it with and he puts it back in and everything seems to be okay for for the time being. Um, We rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one, four stars. I'm sure people can probably already guess, but uh, Alex Withrow, what do you give the father on a scale of one to four? Um. The short answer, well, I'm going to do 3.5, leaning much closer to four than 3.5 because I, it's too, it's a little too early to just come right out and say four. But if we're rating kind of on a curve for this year, it's definitely leaning closer to four for me.
Yeah, I, I do wish I had seen this before I was like turning in top fives and that kind of thing for the end of the year, because it would have ranked up uh, quite high for me. This is a four star movie, as I mentioned earlier on in the review. Um, this movie will make you feel this movie will just cut right through you. And I sat down to this movie really not expecting much. Like I said, I just sat down expecting the same old British bullshit. So mm-hmm. the fact that it was able to put me into the mindset and the shoes of this family, like both um, Anne and Anthony and what they're going through individually and together. Um, it's a major accomplishment for something that on paper really is so simple. So four stars from me, um, three a, a very affectionate three and a half from Alex. Um, hey, maybe you think we're crazy. Maybe you hate this movie and you think it's a piece of crap. Um, maybe you think it's a modern classic. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, Ryan matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think? of the father we are going to take a quick break and come back after this so uh come on back we'll uh flip the record over and talk about some more movies He's Alex Withrow. I'm Ryan McNeil. Alex is making his case to show up on next year's Oscar episode. Maybe we'll make it a three-person panel with him, myself, and Mariah. Um, It's been episode 258 of the Matinee Cast. We've been talking about The Father and waxing on about how amazing that movie is. But this is the other side. This is the time where we suggest further viewing um, that's connected in all sorts of ways. Um, Mr. Withrow, where did your brain go when you finally kind of came down off the high or the, the emotional high of the father um, that you thought was somewhere else where somebody could go after this movie. Uh, I, I'm going to start with the obvious one, which is a more from May right. 2012 by Michael Haneke. Um, I hope I'm saying that right. I never know. And that was the one that really, that, that's a hard movie to live up to because that is a very, that's really, if we're talking movies of this kind that are hard sells, that's the hard sell. That's foreign. That's like two and a half hours, very quiet, but as a companion piece to The Father, I think The Father is the best movie of its kind since Amour. And I think Amour is maybe the best movie of its kind or certainly one of them. So that was what I immediately uh, thought of. That was my first one. So Amour is an incredible film, full stop. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's one of the best films of the decade. It's certainly one of the best films of that year. Um, just amazing acting in it by Jean-Louis uh, Tintignan and uh, Emmanuel Riva, but you're right. It is dry. It is yes. like Gobi desert dry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it, like that is the film I was talking about when I said that, that apparently getting old in Europe comes with being in a big flat because the flat in Paris that they're in um, is huge. Like that's another one that just goes and goes and goes. Um, I mean, I think when I looked at the plot of The Father on paper, that was what I first thought about. I first thought like we were going to be going into a more again, mm-hmm. like we we're going to be seeing an English version of a more. And I didn't know if I wanted to wade back into those waters. And I don't say that as any kind of disrespect to a more because really and truly it, it hit me with both barrels. And it's a movie I've thought about a lot since just because it is so so hard and so sad um but like that is very much eating your vegetables and taking your vitamins you know these two movies as a double feature 
I, I really like, I, I can see your logic because they, they show how there is more than one way to tell this story. Mm-hmm. That's a movie also that just, it has a whole other end to the, to the tale, right? Like, I mean, like that's, that, that's the other thing too, is that movie, I think ends in a much darker place yes. than this movie, which ends in a very sad place, but also a very, a, a place of a lot of love and a lot of light. So to kind of go on the same theme of of um what we're already talking about in terms of movies where there's um alzheimer's and dementia very much at the center of them um my first choice was a movie from 2006 um canadian film directed by sarah Pauly. i went back to away from her have you seen this movie oh my goodness i'm shaking my head in like uh just in disbelief at how that at how difficult that movie is it is, but at the same time, it's you know, it's it's one of these movies that, again, shows that there's more than one way to tell the one partner is getting sick. You know, like that, that's that's the thing is, you know, if it, if I just if I say to you, it's a it's an old person Alzheimer's movie, like you mm-hmm. automatically in your head you go to where you think this movie's going to go, but there's all sorts of stories within that one narrative. So this one, just in case anybody hasn't seen it. And I think actually it was kind of criminally underseen from 2006 directed by Sarah Pauly. It stars Julie Christie and Gordon, Gordon Pinsett as this couple. And Julie Christie is beginning to, um, show signs of Alzheimer's. Um, and, and they have to make the decision of going into the nursing home, but this is a nature of, a relationship that's being pulled like a string, like a, like a loose thread on a sweater and it's slowly starting to come away. And along with the fact that you're watching this person who you've loved for decades start to turn into somebody else. In this case, there's also an inherent guilt um, because it's made clear, although never really fully underlined and explored that the husband Gordon Pinsett, his character's name is um, Grant, that Grant wasn't always the best husband. And now along with the fact that his wife is drifting away, he's left with this guilt that he, that he has to now reconcile and he has to kind of figure out what to do with in the face of somebody who cannot um, absolve him of his guilt. And it's a, gorgeous story it looks amazing um sarah Pauly is a director who i really wish worked more i kind of feel like she's pulled away from film um you've seen this movie of course yeah and what a shame she doesn't have the opportunity to work more or isn't given you know jobs to work more to direct because i i love all of her movies and when i said difficult before i just meant like emotionally difficult because this is oh, a yeah. grade a movie but I remember in the beginning of this, one of the first scenes is they're putting dishes away and does she put like a frying pan in the freezer or something? And I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be, this is going to be tough. But their scene, um, it, it's one of their final scenes when together, when they're talking, you know, I, I also don't want to give too much away, but what she says to him kind of like, I want to do this and this, and then I want you to leave was so right just so devastating to me and there does feel like there's a little uh comeuppance on his for maybe some indiscretions of his from the past so yeah really really good pick and that's also where my watching the father where my head went to yeah i'd actually i had forgotten about that but i i mean that's another one of those moments that you that you get when you're in this situation is 
these, you know, it's it's kind of like the that moment in the father where he called Imogen Poots on her on her patronizing. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like these these flashes of lucidity are the, like the, along with knocking the other characters aback, they knock us aback. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So true. What, what else you got? I have this one doesn't mess with like memory that much, but I thought it played well with identity, and that's the Double Life of Veronique from 1991, directed by. Krzysztof Kieslowski. He's one of my favorites. Polish director. Way, way too short of a career. He had Three Colors, Decalogue. This is a really good movie about identity. And, you know, you're on... It's about a woman who kind of sees her doppelganger or double, but is she seeing her? Is it really her? So you're playing this whole time with identity. It looks incredible. It uses greens and yellows really easily or really well, which are not easy colors to photograph with. So I kind of, I'm, I'm definitely venturing more into the foreign meditative stuff with this, but with my recommendations, but I, I, I haven't seen that movie enough and I own it. And this watching the father, I was like, I'm going to go back and rewatch the double life of Veronique. And I did. And it, it just seemed to fit. Kieślowski is an interesting director. Like he's another guy who I came to at a certain point in my film education. Um, I, he, I, I mean, I'd heard of red, white, and blue when I was younger, but I didn't really get it. I didn't really like understand it because I wasn't that deeply into international film um, the year that it dropped. And by the time he passed away, I didn't really have an, a full appreciation of him. But now, um, having gone through certainly the, the the Three Colors trilogy and then later on um, the Decalogue, um, getting back to what I was saying earlier with Persona uh, and, and talking about how that was a blind spot, the Decalogue was actually my final blind spot entry. And I that was a crazy place to end um (laughs) like the the entire decalogue um he's got this this way about him of an amazing use of color you know like Mm -hmm. just certainly with those with the with the three color films um you you know that's that's kind of baked right into there to the title but also i just i think about movies like um the movie that he wrote that was actually directed by tom tickfer heaven you know, oh yeah, it, like he's yeah. he's got this real ethereal um, way of of telling of, of visualizing his stories. You know, like like you you like they're very very uh, down to earth, but at the same time they feel like they're on this other plane of existence. They really do. Great way to put it. Yeah, they really do. But I've never seen the Double Life of Irenik. So it, now tell me, uh, tell me this one's on Criterion Channel or something like that. It should be. I own it, so I haven't looked. But yeah, Criterion definitely, you know, picks it up. So it should be on their platform. I certainly right. hope so. It's a good one. So, it's a fun one. I was going to say, it's my experience that Polish cinema is very seldom fun. It's yeah, wonderful, it's not- but fun is not a word I would describe. Fair, um, fair enough. But All right. I will definitely move that up the queue if I can get my hands on it some way or another. Well, since we're already uh, going around the world, uh, which is what we... I mean, we've gone to France, we've gone to Canada, we've gone to Poland. Um, Let's go to Japan. I went back to 1953. I decided to go to an Ozu film, and I thought about Tokyo Story. Oh, yeah. So if people don't know about Tokyo Story, it's kind of considered Ozu's best film ever. Take a drink. It was another blind spot. Um, but it's about this retired couple um, living in like Western Japan and dealing with their grown children. And it's at this point in Japanese history where the 
traditional ways, it's post-war Japan, and the traditional ways are starting to give way to this modernism, you know, and where where children are starting to want more, you know, like they're they're wanting to to venture out and and kind of aim for bigger careers and aim for more independent lives. And it's got this little kind of push-pull between the generations, not in a way where it leads to any kind of actual fighting, um, but in a way where expectation and the um, realities of modern life aren't necessarily on a parallel track. So I thought, like, I thought that that was an interesting thing because, you know, we've got this, we got this parallel with the father in terms of how the children take care of the parents, you know, and it's different for everybody. Like there are some children out there who are orphans by the time they're like 15. There are other children out there who are like trying to raise children of their own and trying to tend to their parents and everybody's different. Right. So it's, it's kind of, I find it interesting the real, and maybe it's just because I'm, I'm growing to that age where, you know, I'm not, not to say that my mother's, needing and needing like help but just that i'm pitching in more and more and more because i'm at that age and so is she um it, it's it's this interesting story that's not always explored in film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i i love that you mentioned that one because i uh i had seen that early years of college and wasn't ready for it, it was just didn't get the didn't get what it was putting down was not ready for tokyo story revisited last year actually in, in 2020 in lockdown fell in love with it. In my research, I found that that is loosely based on an American film called Make Way for Tomorrow from 1937. Really? Yeah. Directed by Leo McCary, who won a few Oscars. I think he, he might have won in 44 for Going My Way. So I watched that movie, Make Way for Tomorrow. I'm looking at you now, my friend, and telling you the final scene of that movie is one of it. It, it has an, it genuinely has an emotional payoff that I never, it's like city lights level. Like when I saw city lights, you're like, okay, what? Like, okay, how's a Chaplin movie going to make me cry? And then that ending happens and you're like, oh, wow, I'm completely devastated. That's make way for tomorrow. Highest recommendation for me. If you are a Tokyo story fan, highest recommendation. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I will, I will definitely move that up the queue because I I am, I I did really enjoy um, the subtleties of of Tokyo Story and the way that it told what it what it had to tell. So knowing that it is drawing from this other other film um, from the 30s, um, I'm definitely down to to check that out. You said you had one more, so why don't you? Uh, cl- no pressure. Close this out on something good. Okay. Well, oh boy, it's not necessarily good as it is kind of crazy. I just wanted okay. a movie about if if someone just kind of losing it and they're trapped in a place, um, put oh, on God. Queen of Earth directed by Alex Ross Perry 2015 it's basically like 90 or so minutes of Elizabeth Moss losing her mind in like a lakeside cabin and this doesn't have a lot in common with the father but I'm just watching it and I'm like oh you're watching this poor old guy like slowly lose his mind so the in that same vein but kind of the antithesis is a young woman you know slowly losing her mind in almost a single location but I, I've had some trouble with Alex Ross Perry's style in some of his films, but I really liked that one. I loved her smell as well, so I'm starting to come around to him. Their collaboration, Elizabeth Moss, Alex Ross Perry, they do good work together. 
so like I mean, sometimes they you get that right where a, a director and an actor just really click mm-hmm. together, and you're able to uh, to to do some some interesting things. I mean, it's it's funny because I just realized that Alex Ross Perry was the guy who made the who wrote the Christopher Robin movie. I didn't. Oh, I think I I heard him <laughs> talk about that on a podcast, but I completely forgot that. <laughs> I, I I hope he got paid well. Um, I was going to say good paycheck. I'm sure. Yeah, I've I've. It's funny because I you know when I look up Queen of Earth, I do remember that poster because that that uh, rendering of Elizabeth Moss is something. It's that's quite iconic. Like I, I'm a sucker for a good poster in the in the age of like floating heads and blue and orange rendering i i I like seeing some artwork that's just got like a little bit of creativity i'm very much down for anything elizabeth moss does i'm really really smitten by her career and what she's done like if like seeing all of these sides of her after she played peggy olsen which i thought was just an amazing performance within its own right. And now seeing all these other things that she can do, um, I'm always down for it. I do know that his movies tend to be a little bit cold. So am I going to like, am I going to need, am I going to need like some drugs after this? (laughs) It's a little cold. It's a little, yeah. Yeah. And just his style, I I believe he shoots on 16 film or uh, this one certainly looks like it was, it's very grainy, but this, it does play a little bit with, with like is what she's seeing is that real is that actually happening but yeah this is i would say his his most kind of thrilling it's not like a suspense horror thriller but his most sort of thrilling it's not as emotionally gutting as her smell or anything like that not not at all yeah okay well, I'll give that a shot. And um, there we go. It's a, it's a short and sweet episode this time, but uh, that's my uh, thanks to you, everybody, for uh, listening to the Oscar episode for two hours. Um, but uh, as always, we uh, we try to make up for um, length with quality. So we, we've, we've given you a concentrated dose this time is what I'm trying to say. And that is episode 258 of the Matinee Cast. I'm so thankful that um, Mr. Withrow could come by and talk to me. Come on back on Monday, April 19th for episode 259. I'm not entirely sure what we're going to talk about yet. I'm open to suggestions. And hey, if you want to drop by and talk about a movie, I'm happy to take pitches as well. Um, Alex is on What Are You Watching? What are you guys going to be talking about next? Our next episode will be a full breakdown of Heath Ledger. So, which is why I had Rufus swell in my head because I was watching A Knight's Tale, which is, you know, it's fun. So we did all of his movies in order, obviously a career far too short lived, but that was a lot of fun to make our way through his his filmography. So that'll be up next. Very nice. And, and uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of fun things to talk about there, like mm-hmm. er- everything from like really trashy stuff like Casanova to yeah. really... He was in some more indie stuff, wasn't he? Before he like was Monsters done? Ball, Monsters, Monster, I, great yeah, yeah, Monsters Ball, yes, yeah. yes, yes. There's yes, a yes. great, there's a great backstory to that because Lee Daniels was casting it, and Wes Bentley was his guy, and Wes Bentley was addicted to heroin, and oh, basically had to give, had to beg his best friend Heath Ledger to take on the role, and that role kind of got people thinking about Heath in a different way. And uh, occasionally Mr. Uh, Withrow still writes on And So It Begins, so go take a look over there. Um, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? I am at Shifting Persona, but I'm much more active on the podcast account, which is W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Very nice. There will be links for both in the show notes. And my thanks again for you coming by. My site, of course, is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, Pocket Casts, TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. 
Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. And if you happen to use some sort of platform of choice that my show is not on, let me know and I will put it there. Feedback on The Father or on any of the other movies we talked about today can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email ryan at the matinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA. And there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Mr. Withrow? Nope. I just really appreciate you having me. And I, I recommend The Father for people to watch. Watch it, watch it before Oscar. We were joking about it on the last show saying it's yes. like the typical English nomination, but really it's really not like it's yeah. it's not you know i wouldn't say if you loved if you liked philomena you'll love the father i right. really think actually it's there's a lot more to it and i really do hope that people find this movie so there we go um for alex i'm ryan we'll see you at the matinee